Turn with me, if you would, to Judges chapter 15. Judges 15. We're going to be looking at verses 9 to 20. As you're finding your place there, um, I just want to bring to your attention that one time in American Christianity, uh, the big question that was being asked was, what does your life look like when no one is looking? Um, And the implication of that question was that we might put on a facade in public to look righteous or faithful, when in reality we keep secret our sin that we are engaging in or immorality or whatever it might be. Um, And so uh, the question would often be asked, would often be asked, what? What does your life look like, or who are you when no one is looking? Um, And I think there's been a shift in our culture now. Um, We live in a culture that likes to tell you what you can and cannot say, and and they will publicly shame you if you aren't saying the right things, aren't thinking the right way, um, if you don't accept the world's immorality. And so... um, like the result of that is that people are no longer hiding their immorality. Um, they're just like, they have no shame in that. Um, they're no longer hiding a loose interpretation of scripture. But instead, I think what's happening is they're hiding the fact, like so, some people are just don't care. There are people, I think, in the church, though, if we're talking about American Christianity, there are people in the church that... Um, I think the shift has taken place in that they are now hiding a desire to truly live biblically and faithful lives, um, but because of fear that they're going to face the wrath of the culture, they at times cave into that fear. And so the question, what does your life look like when no one is looking, I think initially was, are you putting on a facade to look righteous? And now I'm I think there are people who are putting on a facade to look worldly when they really would like to not have to do that, but there's pressure from the world outside. And we're going to see a lot of that in this text today. And so what I'm, what I'm talking about, what I'm witnessing in the church in America today is not any different than what the Israelites were going through at the time of Samson. So if you have your Bibles open to Judges 15... Nine, and you're able to stand, would you please stand on our God as we read his word? So we're going to cover the rest of chapter 15 today. So the context is um, Samson has just um, gotten revenge on the Philistines by sending the 300 foxes to destroy all their crops. Um, and Last week we talked about how this this retaliation just keeps going back and forth. So verse 9, he's gone and he's staying in a cave all by himself. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The people of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? We've come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Eton and said to Samson, do you realize that the Philistines, or don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? 
He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, we've come to you, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. And Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered, we will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting, the spirit shouting and the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him the ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men then Samson said with a donkey's jawbone I have made donkeys of them with a donkey's jawbone I have killed a thousand men when he finished speaking he threw away the jawbone and the place was called Ramoth Lehi. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You've given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the spring was called En Hakor, and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Let's pray. Father, as we approach this text, and there's a lot here, um, I pray for hearts and minds to be open to your spirit as he teaches us. And that everything, Lord, um, we allow your word to challenge us in our our walk with you um, and how we live and where our devotion is. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Your first uh, point in your sermon notes is identifying with Samson. We're going to be talking about how we identify with the characters here in, in the text. And so first, we're looking at how we identify with Samson. Um, I got to lay quite a bit of groundwork with the text before I get to the actual way that we identify with him, but just hang with me. So what we have here is more revenge taking place, which we talked about last week. It's just one thing after another, then going back and forth. Uh, The Philistines search for Samson because verse 8 from our text last week tells us that he attacked them viciously and he slaughtered many of them. And Samson even admits that he did it because they had attacked him. So it's just revenge after revenge after revenge. We know the Philistines, when they come to take Samson, they bring at least a thousand men, a thousand soldiers, because the text tells us that that's how many Samson killed in this particular skirmish. Um, They assembled near the town of Lehi, which was not the name of the town initially. We learned at the end of our text today that it was given that name um, after this battle. Um, But um, the Israelites see them coming and they're concerned. And so we don't know how many people the Philistines sent, at least a thousand. But we are told that the Israelites go to try to get Samson so they can tie him up and hand him over. And they take 3,000 men with them. And I think that gives us a glimpse into how powerful Samson is when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. 
and gives him power because the Israelites realized it was going to take 3,000 of them to subdue him. That's almost the entire population of Germantown Hills. So that's how powerful Samson is when God fills him with strength. And Samson, and most likely the Israelites as well, was really certain that the Philistines were going to kill him. If they, if they were able to subdue him and tie him up and overpower him, that, that they were going to kill him. Because in verse 12, when Israelites come to get him, he says to them, he makes them swear that they aren't going to kill him themselves. Um, the, the indication is he knows that the Philistines want to want to be able to subdue him and, and put him to death and he's afraid that his own countrymen might turn on him and do it first and so he makes them swear that they're not going to kill him before and um, because they swore that they would not that they were just going to hand him over to the Philistines Samson allowed them to tie him up and escort him out and hand him, hand him over now, by this point, there's been enough interaction with Samson that the Philistines also understand that he's got this superhuman power and strength and that they're probably not going to be able to contain him. And so I think what you see them do, it says when, they, when the Israelites bring him out and the Philistines see him coming, they charge at him and they're shouting. And so I think they've turned to what we would call psychological warfare. They, they know they can't overpower him in strength, so they gotta do something. Um, and so it kinda actually reminds me of things that I've read and learned about uh, during the Civil War. They had what the Confederate soldiers had what they called the Rebel Yell. And, um, and it was, it's hard to describe it, it, it's not just screaming it's like some weird thing and I've, I've heard a recording of it because they recorded it at the turn of the century in the in the early 1900s they recorded it they had some people do it that were soldiers and they've been able to kind of preserve that recording so i've heard it this is really weird but what i've read from other soldiers that were union soldiers they said if you if you claim you've heard it and you weren't stricken with fear instantly, like you, then you didn't really hear it. And so it's this thing that they use to intimidate the other, the, the other army. And I'm wondering if the Philistines realize they can't overpower him, so they're going to do whatever they can to try to in intimidate him. Um, and maybe if they can mess with his mind enough, maybe he will surrender peacefully. Remember, God is looking for opportunities here to confront the Philistines, and so he stirs in Samson, and he picks up this jawbone of a donkey, and he kills at least a thousand soldiers on the Philistine side. Um, my mind goes back to Judges 3. Do you remember when we talked about Shamgar? He also dealt with the Philistines. He was delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines, and he killed 600 of them. Do you remember what he killed them with? It was a long stick, and it had a big, sharp piece of metal on the end. Cattle, it was an ox goad, but that's what it was. It was to prod them 
and to keep them going in the direction you wanted them to go. Shamgar wasn't a soldier, most likely didn't have any weapons. He used what he knew how to use, and so he grabbed a, an ox goad and killed 600 Philistines with it. Um, and so my mind goes back to that because Samson uses what he has available to him, and he grabs a jawbone of a donkey. I have a picture, actually, of... So that's a cast of what one looked like, but, like, it's a... Like, if somebody's holding it, it's about that big. Um, and so he grabbed that and decided that was sufficient to uh, take them down and kill a thousand men with it. Um, it seems kind of strange that a dead donkey would just be laying there where he happened to be um, until I read that, um, well, there's a reference in Jeremiah 22 that tells us that it was kind of, it was a common practice that when a donkey was dead, you would just throw the carcass on the outside of the city wall. And so they're actually, they're in Israel because they came to him to take him. Uh, Lehi is a, is an Israelite city. And so uh, apparently um, there'd been a recent funeral for somebody's donkey and one was there. And I say recent because it was not something, it wasn't a jawbone that was dried out and brittle. It says it was fresh. Um, and so Samson saw something that he could use and took advantage of that resource that was there for him. Um, just a side note, something that I was thinking of today. So we're told that he ripped a lion to pieces with his bare hands. In this situation, this jawbone was fresh, so it wasn't a skeleton, it was a carcass. So I must have torn that to pieces too to get a hold of the jawbone. We're told there are countless accounts in the story of Samson where he just slaughters you know, mass amounts of Philistines. He must have been constantly covered in blood. I mean, like, and, you know, they didn't have soap like we have soap today. I mean, they had things that they used to clean themselves, but they didn't have soap the way we do. Um, and you know how a mechanic gets grease in his, in his uh, fingerprints and his palm prints and can't ever get it out? Like, he must have just been bloody all the time. Um, which is interesting. I, I never thought of that before, but I think that is probably a good description of his life. It, it was bloody. He was constantly engaged in some kind of battle and slaughtering numerous people at a time. So he uses a, the jawbone of a donkey. Now after he after he kills this, this group of thousand, a thousand Philistines. Um, he, he has this little poem that he, that he says. It's the second time we've read something poetic that he said, so he must have been kind of a poetic guy. Um, but when he's finished speaking, he's finished fighting, he's finished speaking, and then he cries out to God and he says, you've given me this great victory. You know, you've given your servant this great victory. Are you going to now let me die of thirst and fall into their hands? That's in verse 18. What I think is interesting is that in, in verse 18, this is the first time in the biblical text that we see that Samson speaks to the Lord. 
first time that we're told that he prays. It's also the first time in the biblical text that the author of Judges hints that Samson has any thought of God being his master. Samson is a person who reacts on impulse and relies on his own strength in so many ways. And you would think that he would realize that it wasn't his own strength, but this is the first time that he even references or indicates in the text that Samson understands he is a servant and God is the one who's in control and sovereign. But I want you to take note of this. There are only two times in the account of Samson from chapters 13 to through 16, there are only two times um, where we're told in the biblical text that Samson prayed to God. And in both of those situations, he was in a weakened state. Here, he's exhausted and he's dehydrated from battle. And we get to see him, as the readers, we get to see him for the very first time physically weak. Next chapter, when we get into chapter 16, when he has lost his strength because he gave away the secret, when he's lost his strength, he prays that God would give him strength one last time so he can get revenge on the Philistines. The only two times that we are told he prayed in any way and sought out the Lord was when he was weak. And here is where I think we, as human beings, identify with Samson. And you can, like, maybe, maybe you're not this way, but I think this is typical of humanity. Um, when things are going well and we're able to handle the things that life throws at us, we often forget about God. God is not the first thing on our mind. We don't, you know, regularly during those times turn to God, whether it be to pray about anything that a need we might have or to give him thanksgiving or to just praise him for who he is. When things are going well and we're able to handle it, we tend to forget about him as if things would ever go well for us outside of God's hand of blessing on us, you know, but we don't think that way when we're in the middle of those seasons of life. But when things go badly and we realize we can't handle the stresses of this life, we can't handle and manage the situations that we're in, all of a sudden, we're fully dependent upon the Lord to deliver us. And so I think we are like Samson very much in this, in this situation. He has not needed God in his mind until this point. And now all of a sudden, God becomes... He recognizes God as his master, and God becomes vitally important to him. All right, point number two, identifying with Israel, identifying with the people. So in verse 10, we get a picture of just how low Israel has sunk. Um, 
as if Israel had not already blurred the lines between themselves and the worldly cultures that surrounded them, we see in their own words that they no longer even make a distinction between themselves and the Philistines. The Philistines, they show up and they ask, and the Israelites ask them, why have you come to fight us? Now, if the Israelites were living according to the law of Moses, and their lifestyle and their cultural practices were what God instructed for them, then that lifestyle and those cultural practices would have put them in direct conflict with the pagan religions and the practices around them. They wouldn't have to ask, why have you come here when they show up with an army? Because their very life and culture following the, and being faithful to the Lord and the law of Moses would have put them in direct conflict with them. And yet, they don't understand why the Philistines would even come and invade them. Almost as if they were, were saying, we're your subjects. We haven't done anything against you. We don't live in conflict with you, and we don't live in conflict with your customs. So why, why, why are you here? God told Moses in Exodus 19 that Israel was to be a holy nation. And the word holy means to be set apart, specifically to be set apart for God. If they viewed themselves as a holy nation who were set apart for the Lord, then they would understand that that puts them in direct conflict with the Philistines. And the fact that they don't understand that demonstrates to what degree the line between Israel and the world has been blurred. They don't even see a distinction between them anymore. Verse 11, when the Israelites went to Samson, we, we get more of it. They go to Samson and, uh, as he's staying in the cave. And we see what I've mentioned many times in the sermon series already, but Israel, they, they were so comfortable with their current position as subjects to the Philistines. Um, so like when they go to Samson, they are, they're upset because he's, he's causing problems. And remember I said, I've, I've said before, since we started Samson, that the, the biblical text does not mention that, there's, that they ever cry out to God for deliverance. And here they're upset with Samson for rocking the boat. And this, so they say to him, don't you realize the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? So they're upset because they've become so comfortable with the oppression of the Philistines that when Samson engages them and on numerous occasions kills many of them, he's disrupted the norm. He's disrupted the comfort that they are in, even though they are slaves to the Philistines. And again, if they viewed themselves as a holy nation set apart for the Lord, then they would understand that that puts them in direct conflict with them. But what happens here? They would rather bind up the one God sent to deliver them and hand him over to the Philistines than to experience God's deliverance and freedom. In fact, after Samson killed a thousand Philistines, Israel had an opportunity to pursue them and perhaps overtake them under the leadership of Samson, but they did nothing. 
their inaction is really, really alarming here. Their inaction, again, shows that there is no desire on their part to be freed from the Philistines who've oppressed them by this time about 20 years. So the scary thing is that sometimes people in the church identify with Israel or, or look like Israel here. I don't know if you know people like this, um, but I do. Their life is miserable. And they know that surrendering their will and their life over to Jesus will bring freedom and joy, like if they would just do it. But they choose not to experience God's deliverance and his abundant joy that he wants for them. So they continue to look for joy and fulfillment in the things of this world, but they're never satisfied because... They never find what they're looking for because they're looking to everything and anything other than the one who can bring joy and peace and purpose and fulfillment to their lives. So they miss out on what Jesus calls in John 17, eternal life. Sometimes we call it abundant life. It's the greatest life. But just like the Israelites here, the things of the world, the, the things of this world, for these kinds of people, the things of this world sit on the thrones of their heart. It's a warning to you and me today, like if we don't daily surrender our heart and our will over to Christ, we will be lured into the same trap. And so it's something that as we read the text and we look at what the Israelites are experiencing, God is using that as a warning to us not to become like them. Now, remember, I've also talked much about the sin cycle, right? The thing that just repeats. Um, and in the context of that, I've also talked about how it's a downward spiral. So it's not, it's not just this thing that repeats. It's, it gets worse and worse and worse with every situation we read about in the Judges. When Israel no longer sees a distinction between herself and the world, and she's not bothered by that at all, but actually she's bothered instead when someone or something disturbs that new normal, then she's come to the very bottom of that downward spiral. They couldn't be any further from the Lord than they are at this point. And again, you may know people like this. I know people like this, and, and they're believers. A problem that our churches have in America today is that they look no different than the world. I know some, you probably know some, but like, If a Christian supports things like abortion, what makes them look different from the world who devalues human life? If a Christian supports things like homosexuality, what makes them look different from the world that devalues God's design for marriage? 
if a Christian acts like fornication or adultery is not a big deal because it's become so common today, what makes them look different from everything else in the world that devalues those things to the point where it's not a big deal anymore? Where there is no distinction between the church and the world, then there is, then if, if that's the case, then we're no different than Israel at the time of Samson. And Israel was not in a good place in the time of Samson. This was the furthest they could have been from the Lord. But we're no different if we don't have anything that makes us distinct. If we don't, if we don't think biblically and we start thinking and acting and looking like the world, then there is, there's no difference between who we are and who they were at the time. Now, people excuse this mindset by saying things like, we live in a different world today, or the instructions of the Bible were written to a at a time when those things were considered culturally unacceptable, but, you know, things have changed now. Or, my favorite, is the Bible's just out of date. Um, in fact, we have church leaders who are making those same claims. And I had, I just want, before I read this quote, I had already put this part of the sermon together this week. And then I was listening to Albert Moeller's podcast. Um, he, he does a lot of uh, like current events and he, and he talks about viewing those things through a Christian perspective, from a Christian worldview. Um, and he brought up a quote from somebody from the Episcopal Church in 2003, so as we're talking about how the church often blends into the world and you can't tell the difference, in 2003, the Episcopal Church elected its first openly gay bishop. His name was Gene Robinson. Bishop Robinson, Albert Moeller um, had a quote from, Ro from Bishop Robinson, and as I heard it, I was like, this is exactly what I just put together in the sermon for this week. So this is a quote from Bishop Robinson. This is a leader of the Episcopal Church, and he is a very influential person. He said this, We serve a living God, not one locked up in the scripture of 2,000 years ago. All right, let me read that to you again. We serve a living God, not one locked up in the scripture of 2,000 years ago. Here's the thing. When we challenge the validity of God's word as if it doesn't apply today, that is an indirect way of asking, did God really say, which is what Satan asked Eve in the Garden of Eden when he tempted her and she gave in and sin entered the world for the first time. Those excuses at the top that I just said, we, we live in a different world today, the instructions were given when those things were not acceptable, but things have changed, the Bible's out of date. Those excuses are in essence asking, did God really intend for those commands to be for all people at all times? And the answer is yes. And the answer is yes, because his word is a reflection of his very character, which does not change. In theology, we call God immutable. He's unchanging and he's unable to be changed. So his word does not and will not change just because we think we're more advanced than ancient cultures and we've you know, been enlightened and we're more humane 
Those are some excuses I've heard too. Matthew 24, 35, to show that God's word does not change. It says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So everything in this world that we experience with our five senses will one day be no more because it's material, it's not eternal, but God's word is eternal. Paul told the church in Rome, Romans 10, 14, he's kind of challenging them with the gospel message, and he says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in, and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So Paul is talking about God's eternal word that bears witness to the work of his son Jesus. That's the only way people can be saved. And if that word could really be out of date, then the chance of anybody being saved is lost. But Paul says, this is how you're saved. You preach truth to them. Uh, and Peter states that same thing. That be, Well, not the same thing that Paul's saying, but he is indicating that this eternal word, God's eternal word, the message of the gospel, he is that, that God calls us out of darkness for the purpose of the gospel. He says in, in 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Does that sound familiar? God called his people to be a holy nation in Exodus. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And God's light is a light of life. So I'm just going to wrap up with a question. When people look at us, family, your friends, or just people you encounter at the store. When people look at us. Do they think we look different from the world? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we look at the text here today that we see in Israel a group of people that have blurred the lines so much between the holy nation that was to be set apart that was to reflect your glory and that's the sad part they they blurred the lines from the world they there's no distinction anymore and so the sad part is that they were supposed to be in this world a reflection of you and they became so comfortable with the world and they started imitating the world and there was no longer a distinction between what was supposed to reflect your holiness and your perfection and your sovereignty from that which is the very opposite of you sinful, evil depraved and we're seeing it some in the church today I pray that you would weigh heavy on our hearts today so that we would be people 
and a body of believers that makes very clear with the way we live, the things that we do, the things that we think, the way that we speak, the things that we, how we interact with the culture, that we would be very distinct as people who follow you and reflect your glory. But also people who have a message of hope for those outside of the body of believers. People who need to know the way of salvation and reconciliation with you. So let us not blend in with the world, but be a shining light in the darkness of the world. In Jesus' name.